Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergie. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. To clarify, as I often do on this podcast, I'm not an ordained rabbi. But if I was, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. We'll figure that out later. I should do a whole show on just that idea of just why I, I don't want to be that kind of rabbi. There's, I'll tell you a short idea now. The, the thing is, what I find is that people are not showing up. People are not engaged in their religious life. They've, they've said no. Uh, I've got a, a piece coming out in the Passover edition of the Canadian Jewish News on SBNR, spiritual but not religious, which is actually becoming a religion of its own. Um, and part of that is that we don't embody and experience our spirituality in our religious practices anymore. We find ourselves in a situation where we know it by rote, whatever, Anglican, Jewish, Muslim, it doesn't matter. We know what to do and we do it. But if I interrupted you in the middle of it and said, what, what are you saying right now? Most of the time in Hebrew, people would say, I don't know. I, I don't speak Hebrew, uh, but I learned it from my bar mitzvah and I know how to do or my bat mitzvah and I know how to do it. So there's a hollowness to the ritual. And we haven't reinvigorated that, that, that experience for people. So when I talk about not that kind of rabbi, that's one facet. The other facet is the one where you listen to the, the sermon, the Devar Torah, the rumination, the study of this particular chapter, this Parsha of Torah. And what always would kind of, <clears throat> it wouldn't confuse me, it would upset me a bit, was this idea of talking about God in a kind of Disney way. You know, God is a got human traits. We don't have God's traits. God has our traits. God's upset. God's angry. God's judging. God's nice. God's lovely. And it was the idea of it. And I've spoken about this on the show before. It's a, it's the idea of being a noun. God is a noun, a thing. When, in my estimation, that's just not the way I'm going to get there. It, it, it's 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 a constant creative action. We're in the middle of it. When we speak to each other, when Jesus said, whenever two or more meet, I am there. He was really talking about that interaction, I believe, that we have as human beings with ourselves, with each other, and with the cosmos, with the unimaginable pulse of the universe. So I don't get enough of that. I, I, I get, what did God want from us as we traveled through the desert? I don't see Torah that way. I don't see Bible that way. I see it as metaphor. Pharaoh isn't, you know, Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments. He's not a guy to me. Pharaoh is our inner tyrant, the one that takes us and beats us up. And we don't need anybody's help most of the time, not feeling great about ourselves. And that's the Pharaoh of our lives, the Mitzrayim, the narrowing of our lives and passing through to the other side and the leap of faith. You know, these are beautiful ideas to talk about. And there are many rabbis who do. And there are many congregations that engage in study. There's no doubt. But the pews, the chairs, they're empty. And the representational religion, cantors who can sing beautifully, but sing for you, not with you. I find those things hard. I find those things hard. So when I say not that kind of rabbi, I'm looking for a renewed version of how we can create a, um, 
a fitness program, a spiritual fitness program through any sense of religion. So if we can do that, that'd be great. So that's my not that kind of rabbi part of myself, uh, not to disrespect the rabbis. And I have many in my life who I dearly love and do uh, truly do wonderful work with their communities and interfaith in all kinds of ways. Um, so that's kind of that. And right now we sit, of course, in, in a plague, a real plague. It's become the plague of darkness, which is one of the more interesting plagues, because in that one, the darkness is so heavy that you can't even lift yourself off the bed, which is, by the way, when the Israelites come in and take the jewelry of the Egyptians who can't get out of their beds and then take it with them. But what do they do with the riches? They make a golden calf. So right now we're in this plague and it is a chance for us to, to reevaluate what are we doing? What kind of rushing around are we doing with our lives? What kind of meaning and purpose can we find once we strip away busyness? And the other piece, which I'm going to explore with my guest today, and I do aging to saging workshops on this, um, is as we get older, what is our value to ourselves, to society? How should we see the journey that we're in? When they made up the pension idea in Germany, they originally decided, and this is over 100 years ago, they originally decided 71 will be the age where we start giving people a pension, knowing full well that almost no one made it to 71 120 years ago. Then they finally lowered it and normalized it and standardized it in industrial civilizations to 65. Well, the problem is the life expectancy in wealthy countries is now 80. So there's 15 years where you're supposed to take a break and you're not honored for taking the break. You're just supposed to get out of the way. So I think this, especially with the baby boom demographic, there's going to be and is already a whole movement of people who are saying, no, that's not good enough. I need more meaning in my life and I need to be respected as a, as a wisdom keeper, not as a bunch of body parts that are, you know, decrepitude as an aging philosophy is not a viable alternative as far as I can see. So that's some of the stuff that's on my mind these days. I want to tell you that not that kind of rabbi sponsored in part by Kaplansky's Deli. If you've ever been to the deli in the Pearson Airport, which none of us are in right now, um, the best smoked meat, the best fries. Now I'm a vegetarian, but before I was a vegetarian, I did go to Kaplansky's and have a good smoked meat sandwich. But uh, they also do uh, a whole bunch of orders that you can get online, kaplanskys.com. You can order the signature variety pack of pick and mix mustards. I have them at home. They're delicious. You can even buy the t-shirt. I've got the blue one that says kicking it old shul, which I kind of dig. It's a good Jewish joke. But if you want Kaplanskys, just go to kaplanskys.com and uh, enjoy all of the things that they have to offer there. All right. My guest, Dr. Yakir Englander, is working to create a Jewish and Israeli leadership in the U.S. at the IAC, which we'll find out what the IAC is. Love acronyms. Uh, he's originally from a Hasidic community in Israel, the Viznitz Hasidic dynasty. Englander earned a PhD from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in Jewish philosophy and gender studies, Fulbright scholar, professor of religion at Northwestern and Rutgers University and at Harvard Divinity School, 
And he's part of something that a lot of the rabbis I know love going to, which is the Shalom Hartman Institute. He's a scholar for that in Jerusalem. And he joined, he also did uh, uh, Kids for Peace, which we could talk about, but I want to welcome him to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Dr. Englander, hello, how are you? It's, uh, I'm, I'm well, I'm well, you know, as you said, we're in the middle of the plague, but um, I'm well. It's a, it's, it's a time of, um, it's a time of a lot of pain when you work with community, because it's not um, only our personal stories. I mean, there is something with a, with a virus that forces us to be isolated. And therefore, we can focus, or we almost forced to be focused on our narrative. But um, there is—it's also time to do a lot of chesed, to do a lot of help and support, because you know, just to speak with another person can be such a huge support to each other. It's true. But I'm well. It's true. It's um, that narrative of who we are. It. it I find it can be rather elusive. We can create a collage of memories that fit our narrative. We can worry our way towards the next part of our narrative. How do you see your, your narrative at this point, your story? So I think that I got, um, one of the questions that we needed to ask ourselves, I think in life or, and I'm not sure how much we have freedom about that is exactly how to design our narratives. Um, there is, I've learned that in trauma, one of the challenges is that the person who experienced trauma in the past, the challenge is that they experience the trauma again and again with no change. And this is the important part. I mean, someone who experienced trauma, but the trauma is not part of their existence. They succeeded to deal with the trauma. So the narrative of the event, like any narrative of our past is changing. And the challenge with traumatic events is that sometimes they stuck. Um, for me, I have a few narratives and I think that one of the my life goals are to bring them together because I grew up in a non-Western society. I grew up in a Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox community in a city where it's not like Brooklyn. I grew up in Bnei Brak, which is a city that is 100% dedicated to the ultra-Orthodox. So I never met the other. Um, and I got a lot of gifts by growing up ultra-Orthodox. I'm very thankful for that, but also some challenges. And my choice to leave the community with love, but also with huge pain for both sides, um, forced me and gave me the gift to join Western society. Um, in my specific narrative, in my case, I was forced um, naturally in Israel to join the IDF at the age of 22, the Israeli Defense Force, the, the military. Um, and I served in a unique unit that definitely shaped all my life. Um, my unit is the one that dedicated to identify the dead bodies of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I did it during the second Palestinian uprising, which we call the second Intifada. Um, and unfortunately, you can imagine um, how much work we had. And this definitely, definitely deeply, deeply shaped my life. So as a result of that, two things happened to me. 
Um, one, because of my Hasidic background, I decided to dedicate my work, my academic work and my personal work to healing, to healing questions around uh, gender, body um, and sexuality, which is very unique and different in the Hasidic world. And the second, I decided to dedicate the fact that I life chose me to hold and hug, to give the last hug of so many dead bodies I decided to dedicate it um, part of myself to create and to lead a youth movement, an interface youth movement for Muslim, Christian, and Jewish, Palestinians, and Israeli youth um, in Jerusalem and also in some cities in North America, which called Kids for Peace, as you mentioned. Mm, my goodness, so much in just that alone. When you yep. first encountered the dead, in the Intifada, and you were 22. What what happened to you? I thought when I was asked to volunteer in this unit, um, I thought that I would be probably a good candidate for two reasons. One, because when I was 13, I really wanted to meet non-Orthodox people. So I had a business with my parents. I mean, I, I, we came to an agreement that if I want to meet them, but in a Hasidic modest way, I should meet them at the hospital in the hospice. So from very young age, my relationship with dying and death, we, we had an intimate one. Um, so I thought that, so I was a Hasidic teenager that all my vacations I did in hospice or in the um, in other departments at the hospital, and um, I was you know putting tefillin for people who wanted to put tefillin like older Hasidic men. I was feeding them. I was sitting praying with them psalms, um, or just did different things, cleaning them, um, and help them also when they died, mm. um, which is an interesting teenager life. Yeah. So I thought that this will help me to be able to face this unit. And I think it's true. Um, what I didn't take in account is that no one in the army have any idea how to do this work. Um, we don't have a therapist. Mm -hmm. It's a unit that no one wants to serve there. So it's like kind of people who are the most weirdos in unhealthy. It's like they push people to serve there. So I had an um, ex-Hasidic who is now a Jews for Jesus guy. Um, we had some Hasidim who are much older, who, you know, serve for two weeks. Um, some um, settlers that know, who are so extreme that no one wants to give them a weapon. We had um, a bunch of people and with no therapist who are doing holy, disgusting work. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I... I can express that. I can express the moments, Ralph, of coming to the area. Sometimes you come with a unit. Sometimes it was just unfortunately, accidentally, I was studying at the Hebrew University and a bus was exploded um, next to our, my home. So I was there before the first, like, first aid. Um, so there are questions that I will always carry with myself that I didn't do enough to save mm. people. Mm. Um, and then there is a smell. It's a smell that what Jews 
and I will be, you know, I will say something very harsh. What Jews who survive, you know, the concentration and death camps about the, the human flesh burning smell that I don't want to wish anyone to smell. And I cannot not know this smell ever in my life. It's part of me. Right. Uh, and um, you can never clean yourself from the parts of the body. It's a trauma that walking with us. Um, I try to take it to the places that I can heal with that. This is my goal in life. So how can I take this trauma and how today I'm learning and I'm teaching because I also teach in rabbinic school and I teach in, in different workshops in New York, how to touch each other with more humane and beautiful and vulnerable ways. So in that vein, <clears throat> I read an article of yours in the Times of Israel on aging and the Hasidic attitude towards it. And it was just so lovely. Um, and one of the, th phrases that really caught my eye was the theology of flesh. Can you tell me a bit about what you mean by that? Yes, I, I would love to try. Um, because it's something that you know that we need to create. I love, I love your opening about the rabbi you do not want to be. Um, and I think it's one of the questions that we must teach and ask is a question about flesh. And I will explain why. There is an assumption in Judaism in Jewish philosophy and theology, that we never said no to our bodies, right? Unlike maybe our conception as Jews about Christ some portion of Christianity, and I'm very, as you can see, I'm very sensitive when people speak about another religion with no really living there. Um, there is an assumption that Christianity or some parts of Christianity, they said no by joining monastic life, they saying no to the body. And with the Jews, since we are forced to marry, even if you are a holy rabbi who want to, who wish to dedicate your life to the divine, you must marry. And also the halacha, the Jewish law, is there is almost no Jewish law about what you need to believe or think. It's mostly about how you need to act with your body. And therefore the assumption is that we are welcoming our bodies. Now, we all know that it didn't happen all over Judaism. So today, the new age Jews or the cool Jews or whatever, <laughs> the hippie Jews, we go to the Hasidic movement um, at the beginning of the Hasidic movement and where the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the movement and some of the rabbis, right, Reb Nachman from Breslev, they were in the forest and they speak to God in the forest. It's very sweet narrative, and I love it. What we don't take in account, and we need to be very serious about that, are two things. One, the halacha, and again, I say it with huge amount of love. It's, it's what I call inner critique. It's critique of people that we are part of something, right? I don't critique from outside. There is a problem that the halacha is mostly to control the body, is not to celebrate the body. It's not mindfulness. Now we try to bring mindfulness, but halacha is not mindfulness. Halacha is mostly, if you read the books of halacha, the Shulchan Aruch or Maimonides, etc., etc., it's mostly how to rule the body. It's not how to listen to the body. The body become a vehicle 
to do the Jewish law. It's like to, ex to express the, the Jewish divine law. But it's not that we are deeply listening to the body. Now, no critic. This is what was right probably to the Jews for many years, and it's fine. But today, I think that more and more we understand what actually the Talmudic rabbi understood, that the divine tzelem Elohim, the human, the, the, the divine image is also at least in the flesh, right? It's in our flesh. And today, more and more people understand that we need to learn how to listen to the body, not to use the body, not to express my feeling by the body. It's different. How to listen to the body. And unfortunately, we don't have good Jewish tools how to do it. So this is a beauty where we can go and learn from other traditions, how they deeply learn to listen to the body. So the trauma, for example, if you want to touch trauma, you need to learn to listen not to your images only of the trauma, but also to where it's touch you in the body and then doing things that will heal that. So the body is a place of healing, but it's also a place of pleasure, which is very important. And Jews, we don't professional in the Jewish tradition, how to experience pleasure. We don't have Tantra and other things. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, which is very important to my article, is how to listen to the memories, to the life that is inside our bodies. So in Western society, we think that young bodies are beautiful. Young bodies are innocent because it has a potential that was not lived yet. Older bodies should be beautiful mm. because they hold now a lot of experiences of a world that I, as a younger person, will never experience because I didn't live that. And what we needed to educate the young generation and ourselves, and this is something that I grew up with, is how to learn to see that older people really beautiful. And so, how to, so yes. let me, so <clears throat> there's so much in there. So what we have now in a secular material society is a, is a commodified human being. What use are you to me? Um, one of the things you identified was from the Hasidic point of view is seeing life in cycles. Right. And you, and you described the pre-bar mitzvah, 13 or 12 years of age, as a cycle of being. And then from there, you enter into the cycle of doing. And in doing, there are the good deeds that you should do, the relationships with your family, the work, all of these things are the work, which in the Hindu tradition would be the householder. And then you talk about the return to being, but you did talk about how we don't let that last piece happen. Can you just elaborate a bit on that whole idea of the cycles and, and where we end up? For sure, for sure. Thank you for asking. So it's so interesting when you look on the Hasidisha boys, Okay, and unfortunately in the Hasidic community, and, and here is a, again, critique, something that I hope they are going to heal, is mostly they focus on men and not on women. Yes. Okay, I mean, 
but this is for another dialogue, if you wish. Um, when you look on Hasidish boys, very young boys, until the age of three, you are not allowed to touch their hair. In a way, they look exactly like girls. We raise Hasidish boys until the age of three as women. As women, totally as girls. Now, yes, there are some differences, but general, they look as girls. We behave with them in many ways as girls, etc., etc. Why do we do that? Um, this is good question from anthropological point of view. Um, there is no Hasidic deep theology around that. Because hmm. my cousin did that. Yes. You know, and then I, they take them in the age of three, you know, to, to we, we take haircut. them yeah, to haircut. And also we bring them for the first time to the Haider, to the school of the boys. And we put, we write the letters with honey and they lick the letters. Think about the flesh of that. You lick the letter inside your body, right? Think how much that part's fantastic. That is amazing. Amazing. I love that. Right. So, and even the, after that, until the age of 13, if you go to Hasidic synagogues, and this is something that I love about that, you are not allowed to feast, to fast on Yom Kippur. Yeah. The children are eating all the Israeli snacks, like beastly <laughs> bamba. It smells from here until it's all like big factory of Charlie and the chocolate. And they um, enjoy it too. They like they eating it in front it. of you. They, they just love did, it. They, we had a thing, I'm Moroccan, so we had a thing of vishuelas, which was a, a mm -hmm. strip of dough that you roll in honey. So there'd always be some kid walking by you at about two in the afternoon eating a vishuela. <laughs> like, exactly. And I, boys and girls could move freely from both sides of the, uh, 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 of the wall. They could, the separation right. was no longer there. It's, so, it's true. So that's true. part of that sort of innocence of being exactly without it's the like, obligation to do right i mean there is no halacha there is no jewish law that you need to follow until the age of 13 all what you do until the age of 13 it's called education we prepare you but there is no you you are you are not allowed you are not um forced to do it right. which means that there is some deep understanding that until the age of 13 the first part of your life you need to be an observer. You need to learn just to be. You need to be like a cat, like a dog. They right. don't try to do something in the world, right? Which is fascinating that our cats can be all day do nothing, but actually, in a way, they are living more than us. Well, they're living in the present. Exactly. They have no past to, to ruminate over or anxiety of the future. They're just right here. They're Buddhas. They're little Buddhas walking around yes, our house. Exactly. So, exactly. We, so we go into doing. So after then we move to doing. And this is a place where it's very complicated because it's not black and white, right? I mean, even when you are doing, you need to have portions when you are still being. This is why we meditate. Some of us, we pray, right? Or we play. I mean, doing play is something that we need to hold in order to hold these moments of not doing, but being. So you right. can see it, for example, when people go to nature. Some people who go to nature, at least I can speak with Israelis, um, when we go to nature, because we go many times after the military, the, all the time the men, they speak about like, okay, how many miles did you walk today? <laughs> and how hard was the hiking and, or biking, et cetera, et cetera. They do it as sport. Or when you do martial arts, many people do it as sport. Some people, they do it as art. You are in nature. 
It doesn't matter how much you walk if the question is which kind of relationship you succeeded to do with the trees and the flowers, right? Now it's easy to say, so hard to do because our guilt and our feelings and all of that is like, did you do enough? Is it okay? Is not okay? All the like questions, the fears, everything is there coming. This is why it's so hard to meditate, right? It's real art to meditate. However, there is tension, healthy tension between doing, because we need to do, and being. Now, some people choose to dedicate their life to mostly being, like Trappist monks and nuns. Right. Well, that's not or our like tradition. Buddhist, right. Or in the Jewish tradition, you have some people who dedicate their life to study Torah with no meaning to becoming rabbis with no right like right. yeshiva is not to become a rabbi but here's another piece the doing in the architecture of time you know that heschel talks about that that is part of what judaism is is the six days and the one day is the shabbat the sabbath is the being the other days are the doing so there's a way of reinforcing that through the strictures of observance I love it, Ralph. So for example, I'm so jealous when people tell me like, oh, Orthodox people, they are so narrow-minded, et cetera, et cetera. I say, tell me when for the last time you took your phone, seriously took your phone, yeah. put it on a flight mode for 25 hours. Now, right. can you do it once a week? Really, really not using now your, your computer to connect to Facebook, like seriously to disconnect. <laughs> It's really hard. I don't critique anyone, but it's very hard. Now, in a way, your Shabbat can be a day of being, which is the essence of that. Yeah. You can very easily make it to another day of doing. Oh, which yeah. Is what we need to prevent and to try not to do. Right? And imagine if, if everyone in the world did a, their own Shabbat, you would have a 14% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions around the world right now. So Just the one of the things, yeah, right? exactly, it's the unplugging. I mean, one of the tshuva that we need to do, I need to do. The change, the turn, that, yes. Yeah, right. Um, to, we need to, I need I need to repair the fact that I was flying so much. Right. Um, now I didn't fly from March and Baruch Hashem, thanks God, right? I'm I'm hurting much less the world. And this is a big, big tshuva, big, um, you know, healing and reflecting that I need to do. As one example, so right. many others. We all have so, them. Right. So now I want to go to the third part. And here is the ch what I think. I am listening. I love elders. Okay. I fall in love with elders from <laughs> in the Hasidic community from young, from very young age. So for me, hot people are much older. Um, <laughs> now, it's not black and white because it's not sexually, et cetera, et cetera, but you understand the point. Yeah. Like, I love being touched by elders. I love touching them. I want to be with them. I, I, so, I have so much pain that when I left the Hasidic community, I don't have so many. I have some. I'm trying to have friends who are much, much older than me. Like, I yearn that. And so many of the people that I meet when I ask them, so tell me about your grandma, your grandpa. So many stories are coming. And then, like, but they're not here anymore, so I don't have anyone else. Mm -hmm. This is pain, and I want to explain why. Because in Western dialogue or, or language, 
the feeling is that we continue to do until we die. And if we can't do, is a problem. It's like a person who can't do or when your physicality become weaker and you cannot do the same movement, that you cannot carry so much, you cannot do the same yoga that you did before, you cannot do the martial arts, you cannot work so much, you need to sleep more, there is grieving about that. And part of the grieving, grieving is fine, but part of that is forced by our language and narrative that we need all the time to do. What we are missing is what the Hasidic community, as many other traditional communities, they understand that at one point in life, and each person should choose when it's that point, the focus needs to shift from mostly doing and some being to mostly being and some doing as much as you want. So, you, for example, I will give you an example. In Bnei Brak, in the city where I grew up, there are two months, the months of Elul, which is around September, and in the months, and there is another month of um, Av, which is around August. It's two months that all the yeshiva people, we go and we invite the elders to come for free to any yeshiva. And for two months, they study with us Torah. Now, they do not go and study deep, you know, all the arguments that we know about Talmudic <laughs> people. They study and they teach us how to be close to the text. They do it much more calm. They inspired us. You see their tears when they pray. It's like, who, who cry? When did you go to shul? Any shul, reform, conservative, reconstruction, you name it. And you see people cry on the page. So the page will hold tears. And you observe that. And you understand that the elders have something to teach you that no one else, doesn't matter how genius this rabbi is, they cannot teach you. Because it's the art of being. And this is something that I want to invite us. And I think in time of Corona and COVID, when the elders are so isolated, to make tshuva on that, to ask the questions. So let me ask you something. Because I know I could ask you a hundred things. When, as you put it, the armor of steel is put aside of the doing in life, what is left? Because I... As you said, the model is a functionality and utility. And if you're not useful in a functional way, then you're warehoused. So where do we go? If we take that armor off, and as the Hindus also say, you move from householder to forest dweller, to what is, what is that path? How do you see that? So... I want to be honest, Ralph, and to say that since I'm not an elder, I feel unresponsibility to, to share my philosophy around it. I even try not to have one because I'm not there. But I can tell you since I am a very good friend of many monks who are doing it, and there is a beautiful monastery close to Jerusalem, which the youngest monk there, it's a Catholic one, um, Silesian, Italian and the youngest is 70-something. And I spend many, many months with them uh, during the years. 
And also, you know, I was, I admired holy and elder people as uh, Jeanne Vanier, um, the Catholic Fran uh, Canadian one, um, who, and, and, um, and others, and, and of course the Hasidic rabbis that we were very close to who were very old. What I saw with them, what I saw with them that I admire is the gentleness that the person who stopped doing, the, the anava, the humility in a good way, in a positive way, when you understand that your role in the world is not anymore to try to create the right things, the right philosophy, the right theology, the right whatever. You don't try to do it anymore because in a way, and I'm going to say a very harsh thing, it's true that you are not relevant anymore. In a way, since you are not doing anymore, but there is a whole new field that you need to do and you need to teach, which is the art of being, which is the art of how to hold all the memories, what kind of relationship you can reframe and recreate with yourself, with your family, with your community and with the world when you do not focus on doing, what happened there? What does it mean to be and not to be bored, right? right. I, we are so afraid to be bored. <laughs> we are so afraid. This is why we have the phones all the, why I have, I don't want to speak about others. This is why all the time I need to write articles and I need to do, and if I don't do, I need to do meditation. It's like everything <laughs> is about doing. Why? Because I'm so afraid. And then I need these people to hold my hand and to say, care, it's fine, but don't be afraid from that. And one important thing that we also, I learned in the Hasidic world is you, if you want to learn how to die, as a Buddhist, you need to start doing it when you are at least 18. This is the oldest. You need from very young age to prepare yourself. So the experience to walk towards death will be different. So I need to learn this art. I am now 44 years old and I need now, which is late, but I need to learn how to walk towards the last part of my life in order that it will be beautiful because I want my life to be meaningful and I have no tools. And what I am afraid, and this is why, unfortunately, I feel that mostly only religious people still hold it, they have the art of how to walk this portion of life. Right. And so as you, you open, you're, you're, Ralph, I just want to say one more yeah, sentence. Yeah. You open and you said that in Germany, when they start thinking about, the, um, about our last part of our life, they spoke about 70. Today we speak about mid 80s. So there is a huge portion of life which is coming longer and longer that our bodies are changing. Our soul are changing. And there is something about the art of living that someone needs to teach it how to be. And this is where I want to invite all of us to bring back the elders and the role of elders in our lives. Nahon, it's um, it's so 
it could, it can be such a rich part of life, but the reality in, a, in our society is not that. You know, there's two things that I wanted to explore. One was in the religious life, in the, in the Jewish religious life, there is a rehearsal for death on a constant basis. Every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, we dress in white and shroud and we basically die. We do a small spiritual death and a rebirth for the next, for the Rosh Hashanah, for the next year. Um, and in, in, in any of the religions, there are tools for the small deaths. You know, the Bar Mitzvah is the death of that childhood, right? These, these are, in the wedding, there is that catas catastrophe moment of, of, the, of stepping on the glass. It's not a fun moment. It, it's supposed to be one of the most awful moments, uh, but it is a, an end and then a beginning. You know, uh, the covenants, the Brit, uh, Milad, th these are all beginnings and ends, beginnings and ends. Uh, but we are a death phobic culture. It is the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. It is a tragedy. It is to be avoided at all costs. You know, I often use the, uh, the, the Dustin Hoffman's line about what he would put on his tombstone, which was, I knew this would happen. Right, because people just don't want to come to terms with the f finality. One of the reasons I think is that we don't really have a map for afterlife anymore. We don't. We think of it as a fairy tale or a neuroscientific moment where we just end and that's that. And at best, we employ physics to speak about ourselves as atoms of energy that will move through the universe. But souls are not the point of the exercise. And the soulful living of being is not valued. The wisdom that is acquired through a life and has to be harvested and cultivated. In the workshops I do with people, we make sure that this is the work that we're doing. Get an inventory. Do a, a, a kind of vidui, a, a kind of reckoning moment of, who do I love? What am I most proud of? What do I regret? What do I want to be remembered for? That alone is, is, is a piece, a tool. But we instead, we have devolved into warehousing ourselves. You know, if you ask someone, would you want to be in a long-term care facility? The answer is no. And I've had people in workshops say to me, if, if my body starts to go, just shoot me because I'm, I'm so useless at that point. It's not who I, who I am. Vitality is still what we measure. And in your piece, you, you talk about what do we do with this idea where, where somebody running a nursing home says, no, our people are great and they still have sex and they're really vital. And you push against that. Yeah. Why, do you, why do you push against that? I push against that for, because it's, it's ridiculous. It's like ridiculous. <laughs> Not that I have anything against um, sex in, in um, for the third or fourth, you know, um, circle of life. Um, I think it's beautiful. I want people to do. But even when we think about sex, I mean, I'm sure 
And what do you know? What do I mean when I say I'm sure? I know because I had the gift to be next to so many elders in my um, in my younger age, and also because now I'm looking for them. So I am finding incredible teachers. The, it's not about are they doing sex. It's about all their being. Their being is different. The fact that the body, for example, I will give an example. The way how an older person can hold your hand, can play with the hair, how they do it. This is what Jean Vanier, again, I go to him because he was one of the, my top rabbis as a Catholic, uh, you know, a teacher. And he was working with people with very hard um, and, and um, um, mental and physical disabilities. And he said that the art that they teach him is the art that he is now as an elder he tried to do, is how to create touch which is safe. So when, when we say the elders even have sex, beautiful, good. If they want to have sex, they have sex. But what I, or when they have fun, if they want to have fun, great, I'm totally for fun. But I think that we are missing to speak about the gift that they are the only one who can teach us. And this is the important part, Ralph. When I am on Rosh Hashanah and I pretend that I am dying, or on Yom Kippur, I make a shamlu bagadnu, I dress white. When on the wedding, you, you step on the glass, we all happy. Why? Because at 25 years old, who is get married or 30 years old, it's a symbolic thing about that. I don't want them really to experience that. I want them to have fun. And it makes sense. It's not possible even in very young age until trauma is coming, like uh, sickness or unfortunately, like what I experienced in the military, like bombs, when we are mm. in genius way killing each other. And I say it with sarcastic, uh, of course. Um, but I am looking towards the art of living as an elder. And I know it's there. I know, but I, there's a vacuum around it. I mean, I'm 65, right? So I'm, I'm an elder. But I'm not called an elder. I'm called a senior. Mm -hmm. And I'm told I'm going to get discounts at in the States, it would be Walgreens and here at <laughs> Shoppers Drug Mart. And that's supposed to be the big, the big plus and, uh, you know, some pension money. But what I speak to people my age and older, my friends who are in their early 70s and things like that, is their sadness at what they perceive to be the growing invisibility of their lives. Right. That they are slowly but surely fading away. Nobody, come, nobody wants to hire somebody who's 67 years old to do a full-time job. And yet the 67-year-old probably doesn't want to do the full-time job in most cases, right. but we have no other way of honoring them. So we don't have wisdom councils for organizations. If you've worked in an organization for 30 years, you get a pizza party. So I want to tell you, Ralph, something. I, I'm sorry, because no, it's no, go ahead, so go important. Ahead. It's so important. I, I will tell you, I was, when I was, um, I was a visitor professor for a year at the, at the Harvard Divinity School. And I wanted to volunteer. I mean, and I went to elderly elder house. I, I hope this is a writer. Um, and next to the university, next to Harvard. And you will not believe, Ralph, what I met there. I, I just couldn't believe. I met there 
all the people who are still alive, the biggest and most brilliant philosopher and sociologists and scientists who are now living there, that they have departments and chairs on their names, even though they are still alive, and they're there. I learned in this volunteer with quotation <laughs> so much more than I, I, was, I was learning in, at Harvard because I was living with, and I was going day after day to visit all these professors that already in the 30s, I met people who in the 30s, they spoke about how to do peace between Arabs, Palestinians, and Zionists. Like I learned about so much wisdom about theology and philosophy. And the funniest part was that when I gave my annual lecture, I invited all of them. And for the first time, the university got back all these people that the departments and chairs is about, about their names, and they were there. Now, this is something that students are missing. Yes, it's, I think that the professor who teach needs to be the professor who are in there, you know, under 80, okay? But what is the role of teaching? not teaching the new materials. I don't want this professor who is the elderly uh, house, elder house to know all the new technology and the new science, but which kind of wisdom about not the knowledge, the wisdom of being an academic person, the wisdom of being a scientist, the wisdom of a person who was a MD and for years was being in relationship with thousands of people in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s, which kind of wisdom they can give to my generation? And what is the loss when we do not have these spaces where they are going to teach us what's the wisdom that we are missing? And this is something that I'm not going to not get. So, you know, so I as Yakir, I'm looking for them, and I can tell you that because of them, I'm a much a better, I was much better peace activist because I was speaking with people who study under MLK. Right. I, I was the first person that I met in, in America that we met with, with Kids for Peace. I asked to meet with John Lewis. He was not in his young age, but the wisdom that he gave us, it was about the language, the way how he tell me stories. When I listened to John Lewis, and he was not a young person then, I knew that I'm going to dedicate at least 15 years to do peace because he gave me the energy of what I want to look like when I will be in his age. I, I, I know what I want to look like when I will be 70. Yeah, you have a, you have an aspirational piece. Thank you. Yeah, that, that you can see in front of you, uh, and, and a renewing of purpose as life goes on. I have to say, we have to end. Which is, uh, I'd love to um, pick up with you in another podcast in a little while, if you don't mind, because uh, I, I'm 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 you're a, a man in his forties with great wisdom. I will say yeah. that, and uh, there's I want to give you a blessing for. Uh, being a bridge from the Hasidic culture that you come from to the secular world that needs that wisdom in its beautiful form uh, and for renewing that kind of energy spiritually for yourself and for other people in your own ways. A beautiful thing for being with elders 
and for caring for those who were dying and dead. A very, a very, very hard thing. Amen. So bless you. Bless you, Yakir. Thank Tadana you very ba. much. Bivakasha. I want to say thanks to everybody who's listening. I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is not that kind of rabbi. Our sponsorship is from Kaplansky's Deli, my friends. Kaplansky's. By the way, if you want to get the mustard packages and stuff like that, uh, go to kaplanskys.com. They have great t-shirts, hilarious t-shirts, um, <laughs> and uh, wonderful products for you. And there's the deli at the Pearson Airport. Uh, eating at Kaplansky's is a wonderful thing, no, no matter what you're from. Uh, like that old album used to say, you don't have to be Jewish, just enjoy the food. Um, and there's a uh, promo code. You can get 10% off any purchase if you put a NTKR for not that kind of rabbi. I'm Ralph Bemergi. You take care of each other. Yakir Englander has been my guest. And uh, I hope we get to uh, meet again. Bye-bye. podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.